And there were things happening in the 60s and the 70s that I think compelled him to, to speak out. So, hey, Kara. How are you? So, I'm awesome. Today, we're actually going to be diverging from our typical sausage of science sort of topics and flow that we do to bring forth a kind of sad event uh, in combination with a celebration. For those of you who don't know, C. Loring Grace recently passed away on September 7th. He was an emeritus professor at the University of Michigan. He was there when I was an undergrad there, and he had an immense impact on our field, particularly when it comes to constructs or what should be lack of constructs of race. And his thinking really shaped anthropological thinking on the concept of race and even our thinking about Neanderthals and the, the way they fit into our evolutionary history. So this article that we read, which is called what? It is called a Single Sub, and Sub is in parentheses, Species Then and Now, an Examination of the Non-Racial Perspective of C. Loring Brace by just, uh, Dr. Shelley Smith. Just out, well, I guess out in 2017 in the Yearbook of Physical Anthropology, mm -hmm. uh, AJHP editor Bill Leonard suggested this is a great piece to honor his legacy mm -hmm. and, and this interview. And so we read this and it gave me that narrative of our discipline is often lacking when we read theory. It gave context. It's the context yeah. that I never had, like just like you, but you get the end result of exactly. that theory and, and you don't see the construction throughout time. And before Shelley gets on, I want to share two things. I was talking to Sue Sheridan in my department about doing this exact podcast episode. And she's had a number of interactions with C. Loring Brace in the past. And there were two really funny things. Well, not fun. One's funny and one's just really awesome uh, that she remembers him for. And one is he was one of the first people to be really pushing open science and data sharing. Mm. That he made his data completely available to anybody who wanted it. And that was so rare, especially for the time. And that the other one is that if you go back and look at some of his earlier publications, in the acknowledgments, he says... Uh, I would like to thank, you know, the National Science Foundation or whatever granting agency for not providing any funding at all for this work. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could get away with that level of snark yeah, <laughs> in no my kidding. publication. But anyway, so Shelley, you are at the University of Texas Arlington. Uh, and before correct. we get into to Brace and his contribution to our field, we'd like to hear a little bit about you and your background in anthropology and maybe a little bit why we're talking to you today. Okay, yeah. Well, um, the first anthropologist I ever met was um, Ed Fry at uh, SMU. I was an undergraduate at Southern Methodist University, and I hadn't even begun my coursework yet, and I was just going around campus. And despite the fact that I didn't have an appointment or anything, he took his time to, to talk to me, and he had never met me, but he loaned me several books on anthropology, and um, I just, I found it very interesting. I was interested enough to, to take an introductory anthropology class from a cultural anthropologist and ecologist, Stephen Beckerman. I think he's at Penn State University now, and it was an interesting course, and so I just kept taking courses and I, by probably the second year, I was an anthropology major and my interests were really broad. So I also was a philosophy major 
And so I sometimes tell, tell my students that um, I didn't know what else to do. And anthropology is really broad and I didn't have to choose early on. I uh, got this uh, major in anthropology. And um, when I wanted to go to graduate school, then I had to make a choice between anthropology and philosophy. And I want to credit here an, another SMU professor who's well known as a, a master teacher, Ron Weatherington. And he just recently retired. He had a very long career at uh, SMU. And I think I could have easily gone into another area of academia. And I, I think those personal connections are really important. So just mm -hmm. really good teaching and those, those personal connections. And along with the fact that anthropology is so very broad that you can do just about anything because everything having to do with humans gives you an awful lot of choices in what you want to do. That's a theme that comes up on our show all the time is the importance of undergraduate mentors uh, right. and getting us and steering us into the field of anthropology and helping us along the way. And we see a lot of connections that a lot of us have very similar undergraduate mentors or the same undergraduate mentors. Uh, and one of them is Milford Woolpuff, who was at the University of Michigan, which is where C. Lorraine Brace was, which is where oh. you got your PhD. <laughs> um, so bringing all those connections, because I'm a University of Michigan undergrad alum. And so my interaction at the time with Brace was basically non-existent. He wasn't teaching or anything like that. Um, but tell us about your interaction. And since you did your PhD there, how you got to know him, what you learned from him, those kinds of things. Um, yeah, well, the, the beginning of the story is actually fairly similar, except that um, I had not been admitted at the time to the University of Michigan, and I was visiting the campus in January, so it was incredibly cold. And windy. <laughs> Oh, and I was in Ann Arbor. <laughs> so I was touring the, the campus and I was meeting personally with as, as many faculty as I could. And so I visited Loring in his, his office at the museum, his office and his lab. And um, I remember it was a very congenial visit. And Holly Smith was either just finishing up her PhD or she had just finished. And he was talking about her dissertation on hunter-gatherers and agriculturalists and uh, dentition and wear plane angles and everything. And so I, I had a very nice visit at that time. And then I guess my next really substantial interaction with him would have been a seminar course, but it was almost more like an independent study because there were just two of us. And so we met just in his office in the museum. And it was a, a seminar on the history of anthropology, biological anthropology. So I took that course from him. And then a little bit later on, um, I had a, a fellowship at the university, but eventually fellowships run out, they run their course and you run out of money. And so he was kind enough to take me on for one year mm -hmm. as his research assistant. Assistant. And it was during that year that I really learned more about his, his work. He was working on modern human cranial variation worldwide. And uh, so I helped him with those data analyses. And then the last step would be that toward the end of my time there, Brace was also a member of my dissertation committee. Mm. So I knew him fairly well. He, he wasn't my main mentor. Roberto Frasancho and Stanley Garn were the chairs of my graduate committee, but I did work with Loring and he was on my committee. I wonder, this is not in there, but I just, the human interest side is always fascinating to me. So, so what was he like? I never met him. He was um, a very genteel man. I mean, he's uh, of uh, sort of an, an old New England kind of family. 
um, he was always dressed really well, you know, in um, a, a jacket. And, and he would, we would sit in his office when I had that seminar and he had this huge card catalog that he would just flip through the cards and uh, his own kind of personal library. So very well read, very well rounded and just a, a really interesting person. So you wrote this piece back yes. in 2017 about C. Loring Brace's perspective on the concept of race. What prompted you to write this? How did this project come about? Well, to be honest, it initially was not my idea to, to write this paper. So two former students of Loring's, uh, Kevin Hunt and Lucia Yarrow, had put together a session at the AAPA meetings in Loring's honor. And I guess this was about the mid-1990s. And my paper in that session was on the history of genetic counseling and its relationship to eugenics. Hmm. And that was the paper that I did at the symposium. And, and I wrote a paper on that that was intended for this uh, symposium volume that at the time was planned to come out. And when I finished that paper and had turned it in, Kevin Hunt contacted me and he asked me if I would write this paper on race. And he said he was having trouble getting anyone to tackle that topic. And he wondered if I would do it. And I was somewhat reluctant because I'd already finished the other paper. And because, of course, race is a very sensitive topic. And I, I didn't feel like I was an expert on that at all. But I did use Loring's work heavily in my teaching. I have a, a class that I teach on the, the history of biological anthropology, the history of the race concept. And um, then the second half of that course looks at modern human adaptation and how we analyze variation today. So I I was comfortable enough from my teaching with Loring's work, I felt, and, and I did take on the project. And so for various reasons, that volume didn't come out. And jumping ahead about 20 years here, I want to really credit Trudy Turner because mm -hmm. um, I contacted her and I said, I, I have this paper and I would really like to publish it and would you be interested? And she was very supportive mm -hmm. of um, my paper and working with me to get that to come out eventually. So um, that's why I did it. Initially, it was to honor Loring in, in this uh, symposium. I was struck in reading the paper one, I was wondering why other students of his put you up to it and, and weren't doing it themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and then I also noted, from my vantage, I've read a lot of John Marx's work and Rachel Kaspari's, and, and it seems like cool. the topic has been addressed a lot lately, but you note know, a gap, which I wasn't aware. Essentially, C. Loring Brace is the only one between his work with Ashley Montague and, and, and maybe Marx. There mm -hmm. wasn't anybody else really willing to, to go out on the limb and talk about it. Yeah, and I think it is be, because of the history that it's uncomfortable to address in a lot of ways. And, and people would, in many cases, want to avoid it. And I, I think that's a mistake to try to avoid it. So yeah, let's actually dive into Brace's thoughts on race. Uh, if you could provide a brief overview of what he put forward. Sure. So I think that, and, and as we go through, we can t talk about various aspects in more depth. But just to, to start simply, for those who don't know, Brace made substantial contributions to two main areas, the study of both modern human variation, which is mostly what we're talking about today. But he's also known, well known as a, a paleoanthropologist. And his thinking in each of these two areas definitely informs the other. So it's, it's very common today, but it was less common back in the early 19th 1960s and before, except among maybe some evolutionary biologists, but it was 
less common to think of race as arbitrary, to think of these categories as socially constructed and as arbitrary. And this view that we have today that, that variation is continuous or clinal, that was a newer concept in evolutionary biology. And the, the idea that it's not really very helpful if what you want to do is to explain modern human biological variation to be putting people in these discrete groups that we call races. So we all know that evolution depends on variation. And so he was interested in studying that variation, both in fossils and in modern people. And the concept of race, as he would say throughout his career, just has a lot of historical baggage to it that is unhelpful if you're interested in modern human variation and um, evolution. And I would say that also originally early on, he focused very heavily on natural selection. Mm -hmm. And so again, that's if you go back to the 1970s, 1970s, early 1980s, before geneticists realized that there was this incredible amount of genetic variation, much of which was just neutral with respect to, to functioning. People did tend to focus on uh, natural selection. And the classic example we all use in teaching is clinal variation with skin color, right? Mm -hmm. So he was using clines and trying to examine variation that way, thinking about latitude and ultraviolet radiation and so forth. And there was, to go back to the 1950s, there were disagreements as to whether we should try to reform the concept of race, to just keep it, but redefine it in terms of populations or groups of populations, or whether we should just divest ourselves entirely of that as a biological concept. And race was one of the people who felt like we should just get rid of it, get it out of biology, get it out of biological anthropology, that race as a concept is too vague, it's imprecise, it's typological, it doesn't accomplish anything useful. Let's get rid of it, at least in biological anthropology. So that would be his main line of thinking about the concept of race. Mm -hmm. So he came out of Harvard under Howells, is that correct? Yes, that's right. And, and Harvard was, was really an important place to be uh, at that, that time. So if we want to talk a little bit about Harvard and that kind of environment, I can do that if you'd like. I think yeah. we can tie that in a little bit to kind of who influenced Brace's thinking, because I'm sure that Harvard aspect is a big part of it as well. It's, as it certainly part. is. So Brace was one of a, a number of students in the middle of the 1900s who earned his PhD in biological anthropology at Harvard. And you know, there's so many universities today where you can get a degree in biological anthropology, but Back at that time, mostly, there's some exceptions we can talk about, but mostly there wasn't any place else to go. Um, mm -hmm. You do have Boaz at Columbia, and um, Ashley Monahue was mentioned before, and, and we could talk about him later, so um, that's a, a prominent exception. But the majority of the founders of biological anthropology were um, trained at Harvard at this time. And Race received his PhD in 1962, um, which was following this mid-century period in biology known as the evolutionary synthesis. And it was also following this towering figure, Ernest Albert Hooten at Harvard had died in the mid-1950s. And so that meant that Brace, instead of working under Hooten, as many of his near contemporaries did, worked under Hooten's successor at Harvard, William Howells. 
And Howells was well known for studying modern human crania and uh, doing morphometric studies of crania and introducing this set of measurements and statistical analyses. And, and Brace used this throughout his career. And that sort of training was really different from Putin's earlier students. So we can think about people like Carlton Kuhn and um, Stanley Garn and Joseph Birdsall, Alice Bruce. Uh, there are also other Harvard-trained anthropologists who influenced Brace's views like uh, Sherry Washburn, Sherwood mm -hmm. Washburn, who, as you probably know, is well-known in the middle of the 1900s for promoting what he called the new physical anthropology. There's a famous paper about that, trying to get us away from typology and more static views. Joseph Birdsell also was a student of Hooten's, and he's known for these maps that you can see with clinal variation in Australian Aborigines. So all of those anthropologists from Harvard were influencing Brace. Mm -hmm. And then also another figure at Harvard I want to mention is Ernst Meyer, a very famous evolutionary biologist. And there was this symposium at Cold Spring Harbor in New York in 1950, and Ernst Meyer proposed this simplification of the taxonomy of hominids, what we would call today hominins. And that simplification in paleoanthropology also has implications for how you look at diversity in modern human populations as well. Mm -hmm. So those would be the Harvard people. And then I think there are two other people who really heavily influenced Bryce. And one was his longtime colleague at the University of Michigan, Frank Livingstone. Mm -hmm. um, and they were contemporaries and they, they shared views in the early 1960s and from that period on. As you may know, uh, Livingstone is very well known for his studies of malaria and sickle cell anemia. So that was his dissertation work in the late 1950s. In current anthropology, from about 1962 to 1964, there were these series of papers. And in addition to publishing on sickle cell, Frank Livingstone engaged in these discussions about what he actually referred to as the non-existence of, of race. And he has this famous paper where he says, there are no races, there are only clines. And um, Frank was even more iconoclastic than Loring Brace was, and even to the point where he took on one of these architects of the, the evolutionary synthesis, uh, Dobjansky, and they're arguing over race in the pages of current anthropology. And Frank just wants to completely jettison it and, and get rid of it. And so there was an association there between Brace and Livingstone, even before Brace went to the University of Michigan, which is where Livingstone was trained under James Neal. Mm -hmm. So Livingstone was one of the few who wasn't at Harvard. And then also, Ashley Montague has already been mentioned, and, and he's very important too. And in, in fact, Brace attributed to Montague um, much of Brace's own success in getting his views about race published. Montague was this public intellectual. He was a, a public figure in anthropology. And in that same Cold Spring Harbor symposium in 1950, Ashley Montague was trying to convince the geneticists and anthropologists that instead of race, we should speak of ethnic groups. And that's a really fun paper to read because you can see him just not getting much traction with that. And of course, we use that concept all the time today. But he published textbooks with Loring Brace in the 1960s and 1970s. And those were very popular texts. So I think that, that Montague also is, is very important there as an influencer. I like your statement in the paper where you point out the importance of textbooks to get a measure on 
what's considered important to pass on to the next generation at any given time. Do you think they did that on purpose to promote that view that they were developing and rather than arguing with Dob Shansky to write a textbook? Uh, Yes, absolutely. I I think that they recognized, um, particularly Montague would have recognized from his, uh, all of the public appearances that he did and and being much like in a different sort of way, Margaret Mead, that he was very much out there as a public figure. And so, yeah, they, they wanted to have influence, not just on anthropologists, but on the broader public as well. To kind of, I guess, combine two questions in one, how did Brace compare to some of the contemporaries such as Carlton Kuhn, we know kind of opposite ends of the spectrum, and also what was the reception of Brace's ideas when they were kind of brought forth? What did the field think? To answer the the second one first, it took a while for those views to to gain traction over time, Um, but you are in the post-evolutionary synthesis period, and particularly as you get into the 60s and 70s, I think there was pretty good reception. To go back to Carlton Kuhn, you mentioned, I think if, if you look at those people from Harvard, Harvard. His, his views, Bryce's views would diverge most strongly from Carlton Kuhn. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not coincidental that of the people I mentioned, Kuhn earned his PhD earliest, considerably mm-hmm. earlier in the late 1920s. And Kuhn did try later in his career to incorporate the evolutionary synthesis into his work. And um, he also published, along with Stanley Garn and Joseph Birdsall, this textbook, and get made textbooks again, a really slim volume in 1950 on race. Mm-hmm. And it's a very interesting volume because along with Stanley Garn, Kuhn and Birdsall would argue that race does exist, that it's a valid concept. And that 1950 book is a, a really odd mixture of the old typology and the new evolutionary biology. So you see these lists of races and pictures of races, and Carlton Kuhn is is actually the Northwest European photo in the book. And uh, so they've got the the list of races, there are 30 of them, and then they have these six bigger racial stocks. And so there's all of that that's very typological. And yet there's a discussion of surface area and volume, the same things we teach today with Bergman's and Allen's rules. There is a discussion of gene flow and so on. So it's, it's all, jumbled up together in one book. And Kuhn really got himself into trouble and where the divergence comes is with this book in 1962. So at the same time that Livingstone's arguing there are no races, Carlton Kuhn publishes this book entitled On the Origin of Races. And um, he was already well known as a racial specialist. He had earlier in his career updated this this old turn of the century book, um, like 1899 book by um, William Ripley on the races of Europe, if you're familiar with like Alpines and Mediterraneans and Nordics and so on. So he had updated that book. And so in the 1960s, he was going to try to do this book that put in some paleontology into this and trace races back in time. And so he has um, a view where he's going to trace this all the way back to Homo erectus. And the problem was he has these passages talking about a threshold-like concept as you move from Homo erectus to Homo sapiens. And depending on what region you were in, not everybody crosses that threshold at the same time. And so this work is heavily criticized and it is also being used publicly to support segregation by certain racist people. And one of those people was a relative of Carlton Coons. It was a, a cousin of Coons. And this led to, in the 
62 AAPA meetings, the censure of Carlton Kuhn by the association. And I think it's at that time that Stanley Garn broke from Kuhn to protest this misuse of biological anthropology for these social reasons. Mm -hmm. So Carlton Kuhn is, is definitely divergent for that reason. With Garn, it's really harder, I think, to, to see where the separation is. Interestingly, as an aside, Stanley Garn and Loring Brace were brothers-in-law. They <laughs> married a, a pair of sisters. So they were not only close <laughs> colleagues for decades at the University of Michigan, but they were actually related. Wow. Imagine married. holiday dinners. Yeah, I mean, it would be wonderful. And then you said they're both on your committee, yeah? They were, yes, they were both <laughs> on the committee. So with Garn, of course, he, he focused, he wrote hundreds of papers. He focused on modern human variation and nutrition and growth and development. He did disagree with Brace on the necessity of getting rid of the concept of race. He just didn't see the necessity of that. But he certainly agreed on the importance of variation. He really stressed variation within groups. And, and I, if I had to guess, I would say maybe it just comes down to age. Mm -hmm. And I'm in here that there's about a decade and a half difference between them and when they um, got their doctoral degrees. And Garn would have been working under Hooten, whereas yeah. Grace was working under Howells. And so I think that that's uh, maybe a difference. One other person I want to throw out there, because um, I, I want to get a, a woman, a very interesting woman into this conversation, and that is Alice Bruce, mm -hmm. who earned her PhD even earlier than Stanley Garn did. And I think she must have just been a remarkable woman to function in that male-dominated field. And I do have a passage in my paper in the yearbook that quotes a paragraph out of her textbook. And if you read it and you read some of Brace's writing, they use almost exactly the same example about clinal variation. And if you were walking on foot and you're a traveler, you would see that, for example, in skin color. They're very similar passages, different wording, but the same basic idea. And again, I think if you look at Alice Bruce and her textbooks and you look at Brace, the difference is largely generational. Mm. Um, and perhaps also the influence of forensics, because Alice Bruce worked in that field as well. And forensic anthropologists, just by the nature of what they do, are essentially forced to use the societal categories mm. that we use. And I think that influences their view of race as, as opposed to someone like Livingstone um, or like Loring Brace. So I want to toggle, just because in your paper you talk about some of the subtlety in how Brace thought about regionalism as mm -hmm. opposed to what Walpoff uh, referred to as, as multi-regionalism. And I was struck yes. by an older paper of yours from, I think, 97, where you talk about stringers out of Africa and Walpoff's multi-regional as they're not really paradigm shifts. They're, they're really both coming out of this evolutionary synthesis. And I like that philosophical approach yeah. because we tend to create these straw men oppositions to mm -hmm. be able yeah. to teach them. Mm -hmm. And they're not really. I, I wonder if you could sort of use that as a point of departure to give us Brace's perspective here, because I, I do think he fills in a lot of that gray area and takes us down into the weeds, maybe. 
Yeah, I mean, he definitely has a regional continuity viewpoint. He is within that regional continuity camp. And, and so his views would be, I think, quite distinct from Stringer's, at least at the time when that classic debate was going on. Today, of course, we know that there was interbreeding. So I think Loring's views have held up quite well. But there's uh, less of a distinction today because it's, it's accepted that there was interbreeding. And it's not just all or the other, that it was not just... Um, a, a complete regional continuity um, that you did have quite a bit of gene flow, but also that you do have most what John Relaford would call a mostly out of Africa model that works. So I think we've we've resolved that tension to some degree uh, with a two or three decades worth of hindsight. Did you get a sense that he was embroiled in this tension in this almost faux Kunzian? Was there like something going on where they felt like they were at different poles in that regard? I think so, yes. If you go back to the, the 1980s, back at the time when they had mitochondrial DNA, but they, they did not have nuclear DNA studies, there was quite a polarization. At, at least they, they saw it that way. And, and certainly in, in the teaching, we saw it that way. I mean, there was a Michigan school that was definitely distinct from yeah. what you would get if you were studying with somebody like Chris Stringer at that time. Karen and I were both talking about this because of our training. I think as an undergrad, I was trained that there was this divide. But by the time I started teaching it and I'm having John Hawks come in and speak sure. to my students and, and I'm like, I think these are actually overlapping and complementary. They're not mutually exclusive. Exactly. Yeah. Right. But um, back in the 1980s, um, it, it was seen as, as polarized, as a oh, kind I mean of polarized debate. As a student of Milford Woolpuff, like you felt the tension <laughs> between him and Chris Stringer, even though Chris Stringer was, you know, thousands of miles away in the classroom, you could feel the tension during those lectures. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and I mean, yeah, looking back on it, when I'm now so much more well informed about the situation, is really funny. Um, <laughs> but this kind of does bring us to, you know, C. Loring Brace being an anthropologist as well as somebody who looks at you know, modern human yeah. variation. There might not be an answer to this is do you think that his views on Neanderthals and kind of, you know, the gene flow influenced his ideas on race or perhaps it was his ideas on race and modern human variation that influenced his thoughts on how Neanderthals fit within our evolutionary history? I think they go back and forth. I think they inform one another. Yeah, of course, he's, he was known as, as doing that, and he has this classic paper in 1964 in, in Current Anthropology talking about Neanderthals and, and how they belong in our ancestry. So yeah, there's there's a really interesting parallel here with his studies of modern humans and his studies with Neanderthals. Um, he wrote this piece in, um, there's a newsletter, of course, that goes with the American Anthropologist. And there's there was a series, interesting series of papers in the 1990s about race. And Brace has a piece in there and he calls it Neanderthals Are Us. And it's with the R, the backwards R, like Toys R Us. So he, he really viewed Neanderthals as not that different from us, from modern humans, and as belonging certainly to our species. And uh, as we've talked about, his, his view was a regional continuity one. And so there was this gradual transition from Erectus to Sapiens. And so once you get beyond Homo Erectus, everybody beyond about 200,000 years ago or so at least would be within this, this broad, inclusive, Mm -hmm. homo sapiens species so there was an anagenic transition or it represented phyletic 
evolution and the, and the boundary was fuzzy, that there was no one point where you passed that boundary. And, and definitely there was interbreeding between Neanderthals and, and so-called anatomically modern Homo sapiens. He does go so far as to make an analogy between racial prejudice and a kind of what I'll call fossil hominid prejudice. Mm-hmm. That the idea that these people, these Neanderthals, they, they can't be my ancestors. If you even consider Neanderthals to be human, which, you know, they're, are they human? Are they fully human? There was that debate going on. And just sort of as an aside, but it, it also links up with the connection. He did a paper with Frank Livingstone. And in that paper, there was a suggestion that was made that um, sort of off the cuff and humorous, but there was a point to it that modern human people today might be less intelligent than our earlier ancestors, that because we less often die if we make stupid mistakes. Mm-hmm. And in the past, the, the penalty for stupidity was death. And this paper was written to counter writings on um, intelligence and race that were being put out. There was a, a prominent paper in 1969 by a, a psychologist named Arthur Jensen. And so they wrote this paper on creeping Jensenism. And they were refuting that. And, and they made this suggestion that you know, these, these people in the past were, if anything, smarter than us. If we get back to paleoanthropology and we think about, again, his textbooks, you know, he has five editions of this textbook, The Stages of Human Evolution, running from the mid-1960s through the mid-1990s. And, of course, a lot changes in those three decades. And one of the things that changes is his ideas on what are called single species hypothesis, which is this idea that uh, both Bryce and Walpop held at one time that culture was just this really powerful adaptation. Mm. And so if you had one hominin with culture, that would completely fill up the niche and there was no room for anything else. So you just have this this straight linear line of evolution. And after the mid-1970s, Bryce does give that up. Everybody gives it up because it becomes clear that Australopithecus boisei and Homo erectus are around at the same time as contemporaries. So Bryce does, of course, keep up with new advances, but he always maintains that regional continuity viewpoint. And along with that, this idea that you don't have all that many species, far fewer species names than the current proliferation we and our students have to, to deal with. So the main storyline was was really quite simple. Let me ask you in that respect, uh, one of the pieces that struck me that I hadn't recognized before was his contention that some of the cranial adaptations, so-called in Cro-Magnon, were like we would see in, in drift situations with relatively isolated populations, because we're not talking about population sizes that we have on the scale today. We're talking about lots of small, isolated populations where drift could have a major influence. Did he hew to that idea throughout? That was that was new to me. So I'm curious as to how where that idea has gone. Yeah, I mean, his, his views did, of course, change over time. And, and I said before that he, early on, he focused very heavily on natural selection. But of course, evolutionary biology was changing as a field over time. And he also promoted this idea called the the probable mutation effect, this idea that if you don't have stabilizing selection there to promote something, and in his case, he was looking at large tooth size, then you can get reductions in size or structure over time. And I think perhaps because of that, he was quicker than some of his generation to accept the role of more neutral variation. And he does have this idea, he would refer to it to make it simple as 
family resemblance writ large. And it's basically genetic drift. So as, as time went on, he began to change his, his ideas and his modeling of that. And, and I think there again, he's, he's making a parallel with the, the Cro-Magnon fossils that you're talking about in those kinds of groups with what we would see with modern genetic drift uh, between various populations. But they would be not completely isolated, but there would be less gene flow than with modern humans, certainly. Sure. All right, maybe one more kind of theoretical question, and then we'll kind of wrap it up in a nice tidy package if we can. So in this piece, you discuss a lot of themes that run through Brace's work. And I think one in particular is very poignant for the times, perhaps, and that's the role of America and the development of race as a concept. And maybe you could touch briefly on that, uh, because it's still a thing now. It is still a thing now, and, and I teach about this in my classes as well. So specifically, we're talking about North America and what today would be the United States. And Brace, one of the things he, he had me read, and I still use, is the work of a historian, William Stanton, who wrote this book entitled The Leopard Spots, and that surveys the pre-Darwinian period. And as William Stanton puts it, you have three groups of people, we could call them races, that lived in uneasy conjunction is the way Stanton puts it. So you have these major groups of people that are taken out of context in an evolutionary sense. So you have Native Americans who were joined or overrun by people of European descent. You have then Africans who were brought in originally as, as servants, but of course they, they become slaves, they become permanent servants. And also Audrey Smedley's book um, on race in North America is, is a good book to survey this for undergraduates. But the, the most simple point is it becomes economically advantageous. It becomes convenient to choose one group of people to be the ones that are lowest in the hierarchy and in the scale of things and to be in an inferior position. And if you're going to choose a group to be slaves, to be low in the hierarchy, it helps if you can convince yourself logically that they are biologically inferior that there is something about them that justifies that status. And it was even argued later in an evolutionary context, once you get um, into the post-Darwin period, that slavery had provided a kind of protection for Black people. Um, if you take Herbert Spencer's idea of the survival of the fittest and you combine it with this kind of laissez-faire economy, market economy, and capitalism, then you can say that there were these ridiculous ideas that Black people were going to go extinct because they were no longer slaves, that they weren't protected anymore. And this is presumed to be due to biological inferiority and, and not social prejudice or a history of slavery. So North America really has this important place. It's a, because of the unique conjunction of people that you get together. What Brace would say is you disrupted the clines and you brought these, these people from originally distinct regions together. And um, as Smedley points out too in her book, there's this English idea of the right to property. And it's okay to make people property because property rights are more important than human rights. And that produces the stratification that we still have today. 
And on that upsetting note, because it's still a thing today, yeah. um, if you had to, and I'm going to make you do it, so I'm sorry, <laughs> sum up, especially for our younger listeners, listeners who are newer to the field of anthropology and aren't as aware of the historical context. So if you had to sum up C. Loring Brace's contribution to our field and the big takeaway we should get from it, what would that be? Well, I would be tempted, first of all, to, to give the answer that historians give, which is you have to wait 50 years to do this, but I won't. <laughs> um, I, I'll take. I'll try to take a stab at it. I think that again, you have to, to put him in the context of his time and going back to to the '60s and the, the '70s, particularly. And so, I would say that Brace, along with Montague, had an impact at a time that was critical socially in pointing out this really problematic nature of categories that at that time were just taken for granted. So that, that racial categories were problematic and the underlying assumption that these groups of people were biologically distinct was problematic. And so along with people like Frank Livingstone and others, he, he helps bring modern evolutionary ideas, ideas from evolutionary biology and the modern synthesis into anthropology, and he has a really important role in educating the next generation of anthropologists. And, and I think his views on the limited distinctions with Neanderthals also have stood the test of time pretty well, that there was not a complete reproductive barrier, at least, that whatever barrier they, there might have been, and even though probably the majority of paleoanthropologists today would put Neanderthals in a separate species. We know that at least it was a leaky barrier, um, mm -hmm. that there was gene flow between them. And, you know, I, I saw a number of emails that were circulating right after Brace died, and it made me wonder if the greatest contribution ultimately will be through his students, not just his graduate students, but also his undergraduate students, directly the ones he taught, but also through the textbooks. And someone commented in one of those emails about how he always had time for you as a student. And in recalling my own interactions with him and my other professors, that is what really stands out for me. So to get back to a point that Chris made earlier, we all like to think that our publications are super important and, and of course they matter, but I don't think our students care that much about that. <laughs> they, they, they care about our mentorship and the time that we spend with them. And, and also to follow up on another theme that you mentioned earlier, I think it's important to talk about race in the classroom. And Clarence Gravely, among others, have, have talked about the fact that a lot of times what we tend to do is to say race isn't a thing, it doesn't exist, and, and then we move on and we don't do much more. And we really need to talk about the interaction of culture and biology and you know, what are these ancestry tests that everybody are taking? What do they mean and how do we interpret them? And sometimes the problematic way that these things get interpreted and might reinscribe race, for example. And you mentioned John Marks and just the idea of who's in a better position to do this than we are. It may be uncomfortable to talk about this, but we're in as good a position as anybody, arguably better, to talk to our students about that. So if, if I had to guess, I would say, yes, his publications are important and his ideas on Neanderthals, but my guess would be that through his students, that's going to be 
the greatest contribution. And speaking of which, since you were one of his students, and it sounds like you have a great class as well on the history <laughs> of biological anthropology, how can our listeners find out more about you, what you're teaching, what you're researching, etc.? Oh, well, the internet's a wonderful resource. So uh, we have, I have a page, uh, if you go to uta.edu, um, and look at my publications page and uh, I have teaching and publications and everything that are all easily accessible. Shelly, thank you so much for taking the time yes. to honor and celebrate C. Loring Brace's life and career. We very much appreciate it and I'm sure our listeners will appreciate getting this context and hearing your view and experiences with him. So again, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, well, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate getting the chance to do this for him. Well, thanks for being on the Sausage of Science. I have been Chris, and you can find me on Twitter at Chris underscore L-Y. And I am Kara. You can find me on Twitter at Kara Akabak. Please like us, tweet us, share us, rate us, all of those things. And let's thank our producer. Yes, Caroline Owens makes us sound good. Thanks for the Human Biology Association for sponsoring the program. Thank you all for listening. Thank you.